Welcome to the People Analytics and Future of Work podcast with Al Adamson. Hi, welcome back. I'm here with Peter Newhouse of Unilever. Peter, how are you doing? I'm great. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. How are you tonight, Al? I'm, I'm doing real well. Not as well as you, because full disclosure, there's a glass of wine adjacent to the stream. <laughs> oh, that's true. It's quite late in my time, and so I thought, yes, I'll keep myself company with a, a little glass of good red wine. So there you go. Well, well, well done. Now, you lead rewards there at Unilever, and obviously that's a big job, and you've had a career in this. So, you know, particularly given everything that's going on in the world right now with COVID-19, I mean, what's the future of total rewards? Where are your priorities, in other words? A challenging question at a challenging time. I mean, I suppose it's quite interesting for me because I've been the head of reward at Unilever for around 10 years now. I'm just about coming to the end of my career so it's quite an extraordinary time to come to the end of a career in reward. So I started off in 1980 with a company called ORC that specialized in expatriate remuneration. I've really been in reward ever since. So now at this time, you know, things are very different and quite exciting in many ways. Rewards means different things to different people, although you know, it's a pervasive term. Can you help us just define what it is to you? You know, how do you unbundle it? Yeah, I mean, that's a, actually a great question. You know, I think most people identify reward with being monetary. You know, so, you know, we, we call it compensation. We call it remuneration. We're talking about money. But of course, people go to work for more than money. And I think the idea of reward is much broader than simply financial. Mm-hmm. So the environment in which you work, the values of the organization that you belong to, the culture in which you work, the colleagues that you have at work, the purpose of the organization and what it manages to achieve. I think all of these things are factors that we need to take into account when we think about what reward really means for us as individuals. And for some people, money is that much more important. For other people, it's something slightly different. And it could be the ability to do interesting work, the chance to take on new challenges, and work with stimulating colleagues. So that mixture in the blend of all of those things is really what we try to be conscious of Mm -hmm. in the world of reward. I love what you're saying. And yeah, I'll full disclosure, I've had the pleasure of working with some of your colleagues there at Unilever over the years. And I've always been taken by the virtuous stance that you all have taken around social responsibility and honoring the individual. So in regards to rewards, you know, you have tens of thousands of people working at Unilever. So to create a blanket policy for everybody in each country at different levels is virtually impossible, but you, you make an effort to honor these distinctions. Can you speak to the need to do that? Yeah, I mean, that's, again, we do have a quite a systematic approach to things. We've got about 150,000 people spread across 110 countries. And so we have lots of different dimensions. But what we do try to do is to have some consistency in the approach that we adopt to pay. And I'm now talking specifically about financial compensation. You know, so we have an approach to fixed pay, which is fairly consistent across all the markets in which we operate. We also have an approach to incentivization which is pretty consistent across the whole of Unilever. So although we do take into account variations based on the culture in which we're working and so on and so forth, we have got a very distinctive Unilever way of doing things. And we are quite different to a lot of other organizations. A couple of examples for that, you know, we have a long-term incentive plan 
which really requires you as an individual to invest your bonus in Unilever shares. And if you do that, we match your investment in Unilever shares with additional shares that are performance related. And that's quite unique. You know, most other companies will give you that long-term incentive plan, whether you invest or not. And so we do kind of like people to make a commitment to the organization. And in return for that commitment, we make a commitment to them. You know, so we are quite distinctive. And I think in lots of ways, that distinctive approach is, is a high quality in Unilever because it does make us different and it does make us kind of unique. And so there's something in common about Unilever people, which builds a strong culture within the organization. I mentioned to the people watching that we had a little discussion before, and you mentioned you've been to Four Acres. Four Acres is our international training center, and it's got a very distinctive feel about it. And many people in Unilever have been through Four Acres and made good relationships with people that they meet there. Those relationships endure for a long time. And so that network nature of the organization, again, is a strong quality that binds us together. And being treated the same way is also a hallmark of the way we like to do things. I love what you're saying for a variety of reasons, because a lot of leaders, a lot of HR professionals talk about engagement like it is an index coming out of a survey. What I'm hearing from you, it's actually rooted in your policies. It's rooted in the behaviors of your employees, both in terms of how they invest and how they connect. And that's obviously a conscious strategy that you've all employed. Is that a fair way to? Yeah, I think it is. And, and also, you see, I always describe, you know, reward people like myself, we're the plumbers of HR, mm. you know, that, that really reward is like a kind of plumbing system. We talk about reward being a hygiene factor, but in lots of ways, it, it's the hygiene factor that makes sure that the plumbing's working correctly. Mm -hmm. And people can be very damaged by reward. You know, we don't expect people to be delighted by reward, but we don't want them to be damaged by it. And so as the plumbers of HR, what we do is we create a kind of infrastructure because in many ways, the acid test of the organization's values are how you're treated. And in many ways, the acid test of how you're treated is how you're paid. Mm. You know, so if you can be paid in a way that you believe is open, fair, consistent, and explainable, you're much more likely to feel that the organization is worth your trust mm -hmm. and that you're going to work for it and make an effort as opposed to feeling ill done by and unhappy and dissatisfied. Yeah. Again, I've taken by, and you've obviously, you said it at the outset, that you've been with Unilever for a long time. And well, what I'm here, well <laughs> for a, a, a number of years where you, you have a, a sense of ownership, correct me if I'm wrong, around the policies and procedures that you're describing. And what I'm getting at is this, is that that level of, again, for lack of a better term, maturity, that that cohesive approach was designed through iterations, I presume. Many organizations that I am working with now say, we have to listen to the employee, we have to listen to the employee. And I advocate for that. I also advocate that that does not mean that employees drive your strategy necessarily. They don't own it. Ultimately, leaders have to make decisions that are going to be scalable, that are going to you know, acknowledge the needs of the other stakeholder groups, financial stakeholders, you know, communities and, and so forth. So can you speak to the process by which you got to this? And you know, what do you think about leaders actually putting a stake in the sand and say, I hear you, but you know, this is the way we're going to do things. 
Well, I think it's really a two-way street. You know, there should be an interaction. It shouldn't be a one-way street or one-way communication. You know, the way I look at it is that without feedback, you really don't have the chance of creating a good interaction or a good product mm -hmm. in the world of reward. You know, I mean, we're a consumer goods company. We wouldn't dream of putting a product on the shelf for consumers unless we test it out whether they find it good or bad. You know, we'd first do that and then we'd monitor the reaction that we get. We want feedback because without feedback, you don't really know if the thing that you're offering is, is actually of value to people. Yeah. I think in HR, we often forget that we're in the same kind of business. What we offer to our employees is really like a product. And we need to have feedback from them as to whether that product is valuable to them or whether it isn't. You know, we shouldn't be running a monopoly. If we're running a monopoly, we can say, well, you're our employees. You have to put up with whatever it is that we give you. And it shouldn't really be like that because, yeah, they may put up with it, but it, it may not be the best that you can achieve. And you can only achieve the best with feedback and make it interactive. So I think you need a little bit of both. You need good leadership, you know, because after all, we're not simply going to do what people think they want. At the same time, we do need to take on board what it is that they do want. You know, so keeping that tension alive and making sure that it's not just what we think is right for them, but also what they think works for them. That's really, for me, that's the place I'm aiming for. Got it. And with that in mind, many companies are doing engagement surveys and they might have one or two questions about comp. Still others will do a dedicated survey or some communication around comp. So what does that feedback loop look like for you and what would you advocate others consider? Yeah, well, I think we've got something a bit better than that. So, you know, a few years ago, we set out to give every employee in Unilever a total reward statement. In order to, to generate that statement, we created a system, kind of rules engine to calculate what it is that people actually get paid. So I think quite uniquely as a big organization, we have got a comprehensive system that enables us to show people what it is that they earn and then also ask them how they feel about it. So we have this thing called Rate My Reward. So when you go into your online system to look at your total reward statement, you can find out all kinds of things about it, but also you can give feedback to us about how you feel about it. And we can use that feedback as one of the inputs. And it's not the only input, as you said, but it's one of the key inputs to say, well, is what we're doing effective? You know, we spend about 6.6 .6 billion euros a year on pay. So it's a very significant item of expenditure. And I think as an employer, we need to be sure that we're getting value for money out of that as an employer, but we also need to be sure that the employees are getting value from what it is that we give them. Because if we're giving them things that they don't value, it's wastage. You know, we're wasting money on pay that people don't value. So what we've been trying to do is both get the feedback and also give people the opportunity to get more engaged in how they get paid. Not necessarily how much they get paid, but how they receive that pay yeah. and making it a little bit more flexible. And I think that's the, the key for me is if in the future, we're going to have a lot more data you know, because most companies will have to have that kind of system, you know, where they actually understand what they're doing with the money they pay people and how they feel about it. And then we can engage in a much finer tuned process of making that pay actually valuable for the individual rather than simply something which we do because we believe that's the right thing to do, even though we have no basis of believing that.
Yeah, that's fantastic. The process by which that was developed, can you speak to that? Because again, I want to see the question in this way. Many are saying that's not a priority right now. We know what they're going to say. So they just don't do it or they just do it on what I would call an event-driven basis. Okay, we did that two years ago. Therefore, you know, again, we know what they're going to say. What I'm hearing is that you have an ongoing process. So you're getting refreshed data that are, that's informing you know, how people are receiving this so you can tweak and adjust you know, as you go over time. So you know, can you speak to, again, how that decision was made and how long? Well, like many of the best things in life, most of it was by accident. (laughs) So in Unilever, we had this project to make a total reward statement initiative. And I thought, wow, that's so boring. You know, what a boring thing to have to do. And also what a a slog, you know, because basically normally what you do is you have to go through a huge data collection process. You put it all into something, you PDF it, you send it out to people. And within seconds, it's out of date. You know, so you put all of that effort into something which is like a blossom. As soon as the blossom fades and falls to the ground, it has no enduring value. So instead of that, we thought, well, actually, could we build a system where it was alive in real time and accessible 24-7? So with that ambition, we thought, okay, we'll try and do that. We won't build a spaceship. We'll just build something which works, and then we can improve it. And that's really what we did with persistency and consistency. You know, so having achieved the, at the outset to create this system, we then constantly improved it over the course of a decade. And because we've been plugging away at it, you know, it has become actually really, really valuable and very, very useful and quite unique. So again, I think persistence, consistency makes sense. But you also have to have that vision at the outset, which says feedback is valuable. You know, we, we really do want to understand what people think about this. And if you go into it with that mindset, then the consistency and the persistency pays off. But you do have to start with the idea that feedback is valuable and you can create a better product on the basis of feedback than you could create by being an expert. And of course, I believe I'm an expert, but if I'm not listening to what people are saying about the stuff that I create as an expert on pay, I'm not going to improve the quality of my work. I love the growth mindset. I love that curiosity because obviously we're dealing in with a new situation where you know it's going to obviously affect workers and how it's affecting them from a comp standpoint. I imagine you have curiosity around that. So that's where I want to to toggle if we can. The future of work is going to shift considerably depending on the industry and you know, type of job, family, and, and so forth. So as we look forward three, six months, so not very far, if we want to go to what some are saying that we might be in the situation for 18 months, there's going to be a new normal. There might not even be a normal <laughs> for quite some time. So you know, what are some of your perspectives you know, given where we're heading? You know, what are what do you see coming and how is that going to affect you and rewards? Yeah, well, I think events like the one we're going through at the moment, you know, they don't always create new trends. They usually accelerate trends that have already been in place for some time. You know, so as an example, the organizations that are really going to thrive in this environment are probably online rather than in bricks and mortar because we can't get out of our houses. And so being able to buy things online, have them delivered to you. Well, that's not a new trend, but now it's really coming into its own. It will accelerate. 
So I think there's a couple of things that I would highlight in terms of what's already been a pre-existing trend. Most organizations have been flattening over the last few years and focusing more on core stuff. You know, so basically that flattening, getting closer to the customer, taking out layers of command and control, you know, decreasing the distance between where decisions are made and where the work is done mm. is a trend that's going to accelerate right now because that's exactly what we have to do. That environment creates more flexibility and agility in the organization, but it's got to be facilitated by you know, characteristics like technology-enabled organizations, access to information, decision-making rights, closer to the ground, closer to the customer, closer to where the problem exists. Now, that then has a couple of knock-on effects. I mean, the first one is organizational structure. You know, how do you cope with organizational structure in a world like the one in which we're currently working? You need people to be heavily aligned without being told what to do. You know, they've got to really find their own reference points consistently across the organization to be able to respond to the difficulty in which we find ourselves. And then the core of all of that is how do we define the role? You know, for years, HR has really been driven off definitions of role. You know, if we can have a job description, we can tell you what to do. We can measure you against standards as to how well you're doing that job. We can compare your job against others and grade you. We can compare you against the marketplace. You know, the nature of the role and the way that we describe it is core to HR. Now, I believe that's fragmenting now because the role is something that we want to, to have more agile and flexible. Mm -hmm. So we don't want people to work to job descriptions. We now want people to do the right thing despite the job description. We want them to invent their own job description. We want them to transform the role that they're undertaking for the organization. So that fluidity creates many challenges, but it also creates many challenges for reward as well. You know, but those trends are not going to suddenly stop because of COVID-19. They're going to be accelerated by COVID-19. And this is what I'm beginning to see around me already. You know, we're working remotely. You know, we're having to redefine our priorities. We're going to have to redefine the nature of the role that we undertake and the organizational structure within which we're working. And we're doing that all in real time, really fast. With every challenge, there is an opportunity. And I think this is going to be an acceleration to a much more flexible and agile way of working. I celebrate what you're saying because it acknowledges reality, right? People are adapting to what needs to be done at that point in time, whether or not it's on the job description. And leaders are increasingly becoming okay with that ambiguity because they have to. You know, they have to trust those people closest to the work are going to take appropriate action, which then invites the question, how do we measure performance or contribution? Because it's not linear. It's not setting up goals on, you know, one quarter and measuring at the next or certainly not on a year's basis with few exceptions, of course. So you know, what are some of your thoughts around how we're going to be measuring performance if there's greater ambiguity within the roles themselves? At this very moment in time, I think, you know, most organizations are going to have to shift to a, you know, like often happens, it's a bit of a paradox, you know, because you both have to be very conscious of collective achievement because not everybody can achieve at the same level when everything is changing around you. Yeah. So, for example, in Unilever, we have a variety of 
different businesses. You know, we have we have businesses that are doing incredibly well. You know, household you know, cleaning products, uh, hand sanitizer, soap. These are things that are in high demand and necessary right now. On the other hand, we're also one of the world's biggest ice cream companies. Now, ice cream is probably not really high up on a lot of people's lists right now. You know, so now if you're working in ice cream, you know, you need to shift pretty quickly into doing something somewhat differently. It's not your fault that you're in ice cream and it's not your, you know, it's not your virtue that you're working in household products, for example. So the collective has to take care of everybody at this moment in time. So we're both focused on the achievement of the collective, but at the same time, relying upon individuals to move swiftly, to be able to do the right thing where it's needed rather than where they were trained to operate or where they were used to being deployed and in a way that they were used to being assessed. We now need a lot more flexibility and agility and speed of adaption. And those who can adapt well are going to thrive in this environment. And those who are less able to adapt are going to have a pretty tough time. What I'm hearing is that you're acknowledging and adapting to realities that you see currently and that you anticipate is forthcoming. Many in HR historically have said, this is a leading practice. This is what our technology can do. And they've tried to fit the workforce and HR processes into a certain box. But it sounds like you all, again, are taking, hey, this is the reality that we're seeing, and we're going to adapt our processes and procedures accordingly. Am I playing that back properly? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I, I think the, you know, the good thing is that the, the HR team in, in Unilever is quite well prepared for this kind of event, because we've already been trying to be agile and you know, adapt to new ways of doing things. So you know, something like this is obviously a massive challenge, but we do have some tools in place that allow us to, to adapt to it more easily than we would have done if we'd not already been thinking along those lines and acting along those lines. You know, not to say that we're going to get this all right, not at all, but I think we are more open to the challenge and recognize it for what it is, you know, which is as much of an opportunity as it is a risk. Got it. And so, again, playing that, you expect your workforce to be agile. You yourself in HR need to be agile as well. Yeah. Well, that's right. And, and we want to help each other, you know, in these difficult times to be as responsive as we can to the situation in which we find ourselves. And we've made a pretty public statement that we are going to look after our workforce and not only our workforce, but people who we work with. You know, so I think Unilever's positioned itself clearly as a company that wants to carry people with it rather than to shed people to save costs at a time like this. Yeah, and that's quite a big statement to make, you know. It's a big statement. And there's, as you well know, a body of research that supports that being a successful strategy to go through and thrive post-crisis. And so I certainly celebrate that from a humanistic standpoint, but also from a business standpoint. You know, I just think it's a personally a, a smart thing to do. I want to make sure that we cover something before we you know, wrap. And it's actually stepping, you know, obviously rewards, you're heavily involved in budgets. You have certain constraints that you have to acknowledge. And before the crisis, we were getting to this point where, you know, an organization like Unilever has a 
bunch of work that needs to get done. Some of that's going to be done by employees. Some of it's going to be done by contractors. Some of it's going to be done by startups, scale-ups, and a variety of other human beings. So my pointed question is, how do you accommodate that when you think about the workforce of the future and putting together your budgets and rewards programs? Yeah, I think this is, again, a big challenge to the conventional view of the organization. I mean, I think, again, one of the big trends is that the boundary of the organization is changing quite radically, becoming more porous. Mm-hmm. You know, So although we, we have a kind of, if you like, a, you know, the flattening, which I described before, is a kind of a reduction to a core. You know, there's definitely a core in Unilever, which is probably smaller than before. And that core is is really built around those people who have the secret sauce that makes Unilever unique and special. Mm-hmm. Around that core of people, there's a lot more people, you know, who are increasingly contingent. You know, the relationships are equally strong, but they're different in nature. And so, you know, Unilever, like many other organizations, will buy the best available resource in the market when it needs it. Mm-hmm. You know, so that enables the core to become more of a core and it allows the contingent layer around it to grow. Now, those people equally belong, you know, to Unilever and in our ecosystem. There's nothing different about them. They're just playing a different role and often being paid in a different way. Mm-hmm. So we need to be able to encompass that kind of breadth of experience within our thinking of reward. We shouldn't delegate to procurement the idea that those relationships for contractors or contingent workers is somehow nothing to do with us. You know, so we have to really expand our viewpoint to say we take a responsibility for the way that they are paid mm-hmm. and we want them to have an equal feeling of belonging. The way in which we do that is probably quite different to the way in which we pay the core employees but we mustn't lose sight of the fact that they're of equal importance in their own way to the overall success of the organization. So I think instead of talking about FTEs and you know, trying to control the number of full-time employees, we have to accept that in order to control FTEs, we're actually creating non-FTEs mm-hmm. around the core. And sometimes that could be a multiple of the people who are actually employed in the core. But they're all dependent upon Unilever in one way or another. And without them, we would not be successful. Again, I've probably said this eight times, but I certainly celebrate what you're doing in that regard because many are talking about it, but very few are actually acting on that in a systematic way on an ongoing basis. So my, again, pointed question to you is, what does that look like? What does that governance look like? Who's in the room talking about the future of work and how you're going to create a workforce, not only employees, you know, the core that you talked about, but the adjacent people that are going to get that done? You Who's in the room? As a a plumber, you know, I described myself earlier as a plumber. And as a plumber, I think a lot of it comes down to data. You know, for a start, you have to know who those people are. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one thing to talk about them. It's another to know who they are, where they are, Mm -hmm. who employs them, how much they get paid. You know, so, for example, if we, you know, we've had a big program to create a living wage for all of the people that are employed in Unilever. But it's no good achieving that if we're pushing out certain workers, outsourcing their roles because we don't really want to pay them a living wage and somebody else can sort that out. We have to take responsibility for that kind of thing too. Otherwise, we're just shifting our problem onto somebody else's shoulders and not solving the problem at all. You know, so data is really at the heart of this. 
Mm. So one of the things that we can do with our reward system, for example, is make it available to other organizations so that they can you know, use it to manage their pay. And then, of course, that information is more readily accessible in an anonymized way. You know, we're not interested in individual rates of pay, but we, we want them to be able to understand what they're doing so we can understand what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And if we can understand that, then that whole ecosystem becomes something which is measurable. Otherwise, it's just talk. I mean, I'm talking as a plumber, you know, so I like to, to get to the detail of how we can really achieve these things. And without the data, we don't know what we're doing. You're obviously singing a song that I like to hear. So, so thank you for saying that. But I would say plumbers are part of the foundation. So it makes things actually work. Things get clogged up. Try living in a house with bad plumbing is yeah, what I think. Exactly right. So one thing that I want to ask as we start to wrap up, because I'd be remiss if I didn't. We had a 10-year run where the power base arguably swayed to the worker, to the employee, particularly people who are high value talent. You know, organizations, you put together comp programs, correct me if I'm wrong, to retain key talent. Now, in a moment's flash, you know, people are like, oh gosh, you know, I just want to keep my job. So the power arguably is with the employer. They could they could slash salaries if they want and people will arguably stick around. So what I'm getting at is, you know, how are you thinking about this? You know, people have mortgages, they have rents, they have a certain way that they've gone into their their comp and developed a life around that. Do you want to maintain, enhance? There has to be flexibility. What are your some of your high level thoughts? I understand this is a sensitive topic, so I don't want you to go to. No, that's fine. It's it's a difficult topic, you know. Yeah. So I suppose the first thing to say is that you know, and this is. From Unilever's point of view, we've made a very public commitment that we're going to carry people with us as best we can. Mm-hmm. You know, that can't be an open-ended forever commitment, but we've certainly made that commitment for the next three months and we'll see how things are. But we're very committed to keeping people whole and you know, carrying them with us rather than to you know, shed cost, especially people cost, at a time when that would be very damaging to them. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the first thing to be said. Now let's make a more general comment you know for for years and years there's been a very strong trend in terms of differentiation so the gap between the highest paid and the lowest paid has increased relentlessly over a long period of time i don't expect that trend to stop why because i think what you have is at the base of the labor market you have people who believe in themselves and they're prepared to discount their services in order to get a rung on the ladder, in order to get on. You know, so they're prepared to discount, to play the game, to get into the game, believing in themselves and believing that they can progress. Mm. And so you get that phenomena at the base of the pyramid. Meanwhile, at the top of the pyramid, you get premiumization. You get people who believe in the rarity of their own ability and they want to get a return on their investment in their career, and they want to premiumize themselves. Mm. Those two forces are not going to stop. So they inevitably lead to a kind of polarization, because if you've got discounting at one end, you've got premiumization at the other, the inevitable consequence is differentiation and more inequality. Now, is that going to stop? I kind of doubt it long term. On the other hand, what's very interesting right now is I think we're going to put that kind of inequality under the microscope of public opinion and we're going to begin to question whether we've got our values right 
You know, the kind of people who are now saving lives aren't chief executives in big companies. They can make their contribution, but the real massive numbers is people working in the health service who traditionally haven't been paid very much. So it's inevitably going to question, society's going to question the relative value of the work that's being done at a time like this. It's inevitable. And that may well lead to a reappraisal of the way in which we handle these differentials, although the force you know, that creates the differential isn't going away. Peter, I could talk to you all day. I celebrate the virtuous position you're taking personally as well as Unilever as an organization. Please keep doing what you're doing. And I believe you are a guiding light for many in terms of how you are taking your stance. So I hope more you'll follow suit. Any closing comments that you'd like to share? You know, stay curious and get feedback. Yeah. <laughs> Learn, in other words, yeah? Something like that, yeah. <laughs> it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah, Peter, again, yeah, all the best to you. Stay safe. Enjoy the, the rest of that wine, yeah? Yeah, indeed, I will. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for joining the People Analytics and Future of Work podcast with Al Adamson. To find other podcasts, videos, upcoming events, and to join the Global People Analytics Network, please visit us at globalpeopleanalytics.net.